It is Palm Sunday. Y'all aware of that? That's something that uh, differing groups of Baptists, if you will, maybe different flavors, celebrate to a certain extent to one degree or another. It's far more common in many of our uh, more liturgical churches, uh, Lutheran, Catholic, and, and things of that nature, to celebrate and identify Palm Sunday. I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying it's more common in other, other places. And I would say, I'm going to guess, you know, there's a couple of days, Sundays every year that many people go to church. Right? The two most popular are next Sunday, so feel free to bring a friend because they'll maybe be unlikely to turn you down, and Christmas. But again, I think Palm Sunday is probably up there in, the, in some of the, the top categories as well. I'd say closely behind that's Mother's Day. So all of you mothers out there, be sure to invite your children. Hard for them to say no. Okay. Here's my point. Palm Sunday is the day when, that we call when Christ made his, if you want to call it, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I really want to talk about that just for a minute. But then I want to look at some of the things that transpired between this amazing day that he enters and what transpired a few days later. So I'm going to be in the book of John, chapter 12, if you want to read along. And I have a lot of reading today, so you will probably either need to take notes or flip, but I don't know that you'll be able to keep up and do both. John, chapter 12, beginning with verse 12, says as follows... The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and said on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I'm going to pause there for just a minute. So to set the stage, as you remember, Christ goes and raises Lazarus back to life after being dead for several days. Many, many people saw this. And with the uh, commotion and this uh, amazing miracle and work, people begin to continue to follow him. A short time later, he enters Jerusalem and everyone's in an uproar and excited about what's going on. And so many, many people, and I don't know how many, and you've probably, we've all seen the, the movies where they try and recreate this. They go out and they cut palm branches and shout Hosanna as he enters the great city of Jerusalem. Now, real quick, I want to point out what Hosanna means. It's made up of two words. And it means the first part means to deliver and save. And the second part means to beg or beseech. I didn't realize that till 
I began looking at this, and basically, Hosanna is a plea for salvation. It's a plea for salvation. Isn't, isn't that interesting? The people recognized they were waiting for what? For the Messiah, the one who would save them. Now, they thought they were going to be saved from the Romans, but they were wrong because Christ was here to save our souls. And so he enters into Jerusalem, and the people who've been uh, crowding around him come out shouting and singing and waving palm branches and laying things before him as he comes walking on a young colt on a donkey, and he enters Jerusalem, and they sing Hosanna, praises. I'd like to be there. Wouldn't that have been amazing to have been there? What's so interesting is that less than a week later, he's betrayed, murdered, and lying dead in a tomb. And that's the betrayal part I want to talk about for just a minute. To betray means to deliver into the hands of an enemy by treachery or fraud and violation of a trust. Or it means unfaithfulness. Or it means to violate the confidence by disclosing a secret. So by show of hands, how many of you have ever felt betrayed? I'll just assume that those who didn't raise their hands were still taking notes, because I'd say all of us have at some point in our lives felt betrayed by somebody. But let's put ourselves in the feet of Jesus for today. And let's consider his betrayals just between the time that this occurs and the time he goes to the cross. So this is where I said we're going to flip around a little bit. The story of Christ's crucifixion is told in all four Gospels. None of them are in error. None of them are incorrect. But some of them have details that are not in some of the others. So to see the complete story, we're going to move around a little bit. So let's talk about this. He enters into Jerusalem. Everyone is shouting and yelling, Hosanna. They're laying palm branches before him, as my scripture says. And of course, this part isn't biblical, but the, the subtitle of that chapter is his triumphal entry. So he enters into Zion, into Jerusalem, fanfare fit for a king. Because in fact, of course, he is the king. But let's look at what happens just a few verses later. So John chapter 12, I want to read verse 37. Let me read part of verse 36. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So he enters, he begins to preach. And then in verse 37 says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. Well, now, wait a second. We are literally talking about minutes or hours before. Everyone's in a frenzy. Everyone's cutting down tree branches, waving them and laying them before him, shouting Hosanna, identifying him as king. And he says some hard truths, right? And all of a sudden, people don't actually believe. You ever known people like that? The Bible talks about this a lot. The seed gets planted, they sprout up quickly, and they wither away. They weren't truly believing. They were excited about what was coming. But imagine how this must have felt for Christ. He's getting the attention that he rightfully deserves, right? 
He deserves everybody who's going to cut a tree down and lay it before him. Everybody who's going to sing his praises. And he marches into town on a donkey, right? And everyone's celebrating. And then literally he says a few things that I've skipped because I don't have time. And all of a sudden people are like, yeah, I'm not so sure about this anymore. Boy, are we of all things fickle and indecisive and how easily we change our minds. And so I think the first betrayal that he experiences just after he enters the city is all the people now decide, well, I don't really believe what he's saying after all. The next one is a few verses down, still in John chapter 12, beginning with verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogues. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now we talked about people who just betrayed him and said, well, I may have said Hosanna when you came in, but I don't really believe what you're saying. Now there's a whole group of people, the authorities, we're not really sure who they are necessarily, the authorities who believe in him but will not physically say it, will not admit to it, will not consent to it in public. Why? Because they're afraid of what other people might think of them and they might not get what they want, which is their position of power and importance. Now is the betrayal starting to feel a little more closer to home? You ever had anybody do that to you? Oh, I, I agree with you. Yeah, you're, that's exactly right. Keep on. You're doing the right thing. And then when it comes time, like, I don't know what he's talking about. Now, that's a betrayal that hurts, is it not? If you've had someone do that to you about something important, that's not a great feeling. And it really, really hurts. And so now all these people who really do believe, but they're not really willing to stand up and proclaim it because they loved the glory of man more than God. Now, again, let's go back. Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. This has to be frustrating. This has to personally hurt when people are like, yeah, I believe you, but I'm not going to say it out loud. And so he is yet betrayed by the authorities. Well, now maybe you say, look, okay, betrayed by the people, betrayed by some authorities. Eh. So what, right? Turn to Luke, chapter 22. Here we're going to pick up with some more of this story. Luke, chapter 22. Twenty-four through thirty. <laughs> Here Christ is telling people, telling his disciples that it's going to be crucified. And look at what comes next. Verse 24, Luke 22, verse 24. And a dispute arose among them as to which was to be regarded as the greatest. These are the disciples now. Christ has just told them, hey, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die on your behalf. I'm going to be poured out for you. And the disciples get around immediately after that and say, you know what, which one of us is going to be the greatest? The king of the Gentiles exercises lordship over them, and those who are in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? 
Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as you, as among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I as and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom, and sit on thrones of judgment, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so here Christ is once again betrayed by his twelve closest friends, right? Who should be there, and of all people should have understood for the last three years everything Christ was saying. All the works that they'd seen him do, all the miracles, the day in and day out travel with him. And when it really comes down to it, when he begins to bear his heart and say, I am going to be crucified, they begin to argue, well, which one of us is going to be the greatest? You ever been betrayed by a friend that way? You ever bored your soul to a friend and then only had them talk about themselves or talk about something else? Feel betrayed with your admission? How do you think he felt? Who's going to be the greatest? Of course, we can go on. Maybe the betrayal that we're most familiar with is found as well. Again, I told you we're skipping around. If you go back to John chapter 13 now. John chapter 13, verse 18. Christ is in the upper room with his disciples. And he says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I tell you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Let me just pause there for just a minute. This is where I want us to understand as best we can the emotion of what Christ is dealing with. Here he is, he gets triumphantly entered. All the people then say, you know what, we don't really believe you. The religious leaders and the rulers who do believe him aren't willing to stand up for him. His disciples begin to bicker about which one of them is going to be the greatest as he's trying to prepare them for the truth. And then one disciple is going to utterly betray him unto death. What did he do for that disciple anyway? Well, he washed his feet. He continued to serve him no matter what, even though he knew it was coming. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus, of whom was he speaking? So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after having taken the morsel, Satan entered him. And Jesus said, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now we can write this off and say Jesus knew the whole time, and maybe he did. But the reality comes, his closest friends were bickering about who's in charge and who's important, and then one of them goes and literally betrays him, selling Jesus Christ for a bag of money. 30 pieces of silver was the price that it took to betray Jesus Christ. 
Whatever you're doing, do it quickly. <coughs> now I want to continue on here because it even gets worse. Continue on John chapter 14, maybe the next page for you. We're going to start with verse 8 in just a moment. Christ is again reminding his disciples that he will lay down his life for them. He's telling them, not let your hearts be troubled, because if you believed in God, you believed also in me. It seems from our perspective that this seems pretty clear. And then Philip asks a really interesting question in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. God in the flesh has been living with these men for three years. He bears his literal soul, telling his disciples, I am the servant of you. I love you. I am dying for you. I am going to the cross. This is the last meal I have to you. And Philip's like, hey, if you just show me God, that's all I really need. You ever want to see God? You ever thought, well, if I could just experience God, if I could just see him, then I would believe in him. These men saw God and they still said, if you just show me God, I'll, I'll, I'll believe you. Then I'll be good. How about breaking someone's heart? What else has he been doing for three years, but literally showing them God? And Philip's like, hey, if you just show me God, that'll be good enough for us. And Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long and you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show me the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does him in his works. Believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me. Or else believe and account on the works of themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatsoever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me of anything in my name, I will do it. Do you feel the desperation? Do you feel Jesus Christ as he says, have I been with you this long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. Is the father good enough for you? Is Jesus Christ good enough for you? Talk about a hurtful betrayal. Of course, it wasn't over there. Turn with me to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, Christ is going to experience yet another betrayal. Matthew 26, verse 36. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here a while while I go over here and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further on, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch one hour with me? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep, take your rest. See, the hour is at hand. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The weight of all the sin of the world was bearing down on this man who was about to be punished for the sin that everyone has ever done wrong. And ever will do. He is going to swallow this cup, as he says in the scriptures. He's going to drink all of it down, and he knows what's coming his way. And he's asking his three best friends, just hang out with me for an hour. I just need an hour to pray. And they fall asleep. And he goes back and he wakes them up. And he goes back and pray, and they fall asleep. And he goes back and he wakes them up. And he comes back and they fall asleep. If you really needed something and called your best friend and said, I need you for an hour, and they fell asleep, would you not feel betrayed? Would you not feel utterly undone and alone in a world where everything, literally everything wrong in this world is bearing down on him and he wants and needs the prayerful support of his best friends and they won't do it. They can't do it. They don't do it. And they leave him in anguish by himself, betrayed by his best friends, getting ready to be finally betrayed by another. Continuing on in Matthew chapter 26, verse 47 through 50. While he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders and the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one that I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Now that phrase rabbi means teacher. It's a personal teacher. Judas just walks right up to him and says, hey, great teacher. Let me give you a kiss. And I guess just steps aside for the crowd to come in and mob him. No sense of pretense. No, I knew you were wrong from the beginning. 
Again, he's feigning a friendship to go near to him, acting like he's still his friend, he's still his follower, and instead he's betraying him to the angry mob that's going to come and eventually kill him, made up of the same people. Let me go ahead and emphasize this now. Some of the same people who were there only days before singing Hosanna. And they're the ones who go and capture him. Well, you would think... Well, his disciples are going to stay with him to the end, right? No. Very end of that chapter, verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And so there's Jesus alone, betrayed multiple times by everybody. I'm going to try and speed up here because there's a lot of betrayal. Christ is going through his trial and Peter betrays him again. Three times, in fact. Luke 22, 54. Luke twenty two fifty four. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. You see, Peter wouldn't even go with him. He ran away and he followed, but followed behind. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And a servant girl, seeing him, sat in the light and looked closely at him. This man was also with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also one of them, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know of what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And then perhaps the most heartbreaking part. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. There he is, being sentenced to death. Everyone's against him. And he knows. He knows that Peter just said, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know who he is. And the Lord turns and looks at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I'm going to summarize the rest to get to the point. He was betrayed by the priests. The people who were supposed to uphold the law that God had given them, the rules and order of how things are to be done, the the priests betrayed him by violating their own rules. In fact, the high priest let Christ be smacked around in public, which was you know, not allowed to be done by the law, but he didn't seem to stop it. He sends them on to the governor to be condemned. And they all go together in this big crowd. Now, now the frenzy is not saying Hosanna. The frenzy is saying crucified. So they take him to the Roman governor and they won't even go inside the house. Do you know why? Because they had church the next day. 
Do you see the betrayal and the hypocrisy here? We're going to say that he's done something. We can't get any witnesses to agree on it. We're going to charge him and accuse him of something we cannot prove. We're going to violate every uh, religious law that we have. We're going to take him to the Roman governor. We're going to lie to the Roman governor and try and get the Romans to crucify him so that we don't have to get our hands dirty. And we are so good, we won't even go inside the governor's house because we have to be at church. And you can't go in a governor's house and defile yourself while you're committing murder, can you? Maybe some of our leaders and politicians don't seem too different anymore, do they? But nevertheless, the law that Moses was given by God to prevent this very thing from happening was violated over and over and over again, you see. And they didn't care. He was betrayed. Then it came down to the legal law. And no one cared there either. The governor tried to release him, saying, I find no fault with this person. Why don't you take this other criminal instead? And they said, no, we want Jesus Christ. And so finally he says in John 19 and verse 5 through 7, let's crucify him. Let's be done with it. See, he knew better. He knew better. He knew they were after him. He knew that the claims were false. And he went ahead and went along with it anyway. And he who should have been above all of this, betrayed Jesus Christ himself. Well, why did he do that? Let me go back to John chapter 19. We've carried a bit of passage through John. John chapter 19. Verse 14 through 16. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. So that's 6 a.m. This has been going on all night. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to be crucified. Now, this is where I want us to come full circle. These are the same people who were crying Hosanna, who are now crying, crucify him. This is the same city, the same group of people who have betrayed him every single step of the way. And you can see, and we didn't spend a lot of time on it, but you've surely read it, the agony with which he prayed in the garden saying, God, please let this pass from me, but nevertheless, your will be done. I will be betrayed. I will be spit on. I will be crucified. I will be stabbed. I will take everything, every sin that's ever been committed and ever will be, and I will take it, and I will take it gladly to the cross for these same people. No one gets nailed to a cross and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do while they're crucifying if it isn't the Son of God. Despite all the betrayals, He loved us anyway. So let me just briefly review. He was betrayed by the people in their unbelief. He was betrayed by the authorities who wouldn't stand up and admit who He was. He was betrayed by all the disciples when they began to argue about who was going to be the greatest. He was betrayed by Judas among his friends when he left. 
the Last Supper. He was betrayed by Philip, who just wanted to see God. He was betrayed by Peter, James, and John in the garden when they couldn't stay awake. He was again betrayed by Judas when he came and said, Rabbi, and gave him a kiss on the cheek. He was betrayed by his disciples when they all ran away in fear. He was betrayed by Peter when he three times said, I do not know the man. He was betrayed by the priests who should have supported the law as it was given by God. And he was betrayed by the Romans. He was betrayed by the chief priests and officers when they yelled, Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Which is just unbelievable. And then he was betrayed by the people who yelled, Crucify him. And I want to make this personal for just a second. Do you know who else betrayed him? You did. I did. How do I know that? It's a good question. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to read the first half of this chapter, and I want you to listen to the words that I emphasize. And as I read this, just in case you're not familiar with it, understand Isaiah was written hundreds, if not a thousand years or so before Christ, or not a thousand, hundreds of years before Christ was born. This is the prophecy of what will happen, but understand the tenses of what we are getting ready to read. And when I read this, I want you to consider it personally. Okay? Who has believed what has been heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him. Now get ready, because this we isn't Isaiah himself, because Isaiah never saw him. So this we is a collective we, as in us, then, now, and in the future. Should not look at him, because there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, you can sit here 2,000 years later and say, well, look, I'm not Peter and I'm not James and I'm not John. I didn't despise him. I didn't break a Roman law. I wasn't a priest. I wasn't a leader who did this. I didn't run away when it really came down to it. And I do all these things. Look, I'm here in church. Why are you yelling at me? The reality is this. We are his betrayers because we have sinned. He died for you. He died because of you. And had every other person on this earth been born innocent except for you, he would have done the same anyway. 
Because he loves us no matter how many times we betray him. No matter how many times we're like, God, if you would just verbally tell me, I'll do what you want me to do. No matter how many times we know we should say something, but we don't because we're afraid of what other people might think about us. No matter how many times we betray him and act like we're his friends, but then we go and do something that isn't right. No matter how many times he knocks on our door and says, you need to pray about this. And 10 minutes later or less, we're falling asleep. You see, I bet you could go through every single one of these circumstances and find yourself there because we are there. We are the betrayers. We have all fallen away. It is our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. We are all astray. But his death conquered the iniquities, the sins, the guilt of all of us. And he did it despite our betrayal. He loves us anyway. That is the purest form of love that can possibly ever be is the love of a God who sent his only son to die for us. What did my betrayal, literally my betrayal cost Christ? Everything. But you know, worse than the nails, worse than the pain, worse than the crowny thorns? Was it cost our Lord and Savior to be for a time separated from God? Never been separated before. And this verse tells us, in verse 10, Isaiah 53, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God looked away because of me. God looked away from his only son because of my sin, because of your sin, because he cannot look at our sin and our iniquities. And Christ, no matter how many times we betray him, was willing to take that on and pay the ultimate penalty for me and for you. So the real question is, as I pointed out, there will be perhaps millions of people who gathered all around the world today, some of whom will symbolically wave palm branches. I dare say many of pastors are preaching on the same passage that I opened up with, singing Hosanna. But how many people will come to a church and will sit there with their head and say, yeah, I agree with that. Amen, brother. Hosanna. And then they'll walk out and betray him again just like the disciples. But God showed his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And just in case you didn't believe me that all these people are probably the same ones, 
I'm going to close with a verse from Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. It's the day of Pentecost. And Peter is preaching. You see, Peter got redeemed. I don't think Peter turned away like that again. Peter was redeemed at the end of the book of John. Beautiful last chapter. And Peter begins to preach. And he makes his point by saying this. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certainty that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom was crucified. See, he is telling those who are there listening, still in Jerusalem, only a short time later, the very person that you crucified is in fact the Messiah. You just murdered the Messiah. You betrayed him by what you're doing. He was the one. You have missed the point. You have missed the mark. See, that's what sin is too. If you go back and look at the definition of sin, it means missing the mark. You're not hitting what you should be. And Christ says, you crucified the one whom you were waiting for. And then verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart or pricked at the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And the answer came very simply, Repent. And so as I stand here before you today, and I want to put you in remembrance this week, as we pause and think about this celebration that we may have today when Christ uh, triumphantly comes into Jerusalem, only to be betrayed by everybody repeatedly. That we have betrayed him too. But it was his death, regardless of my betrayal, that paid the penalty. And that I must repent to him. And when I have repented and he has saved my soul, there will be a peace and a change that comes over me that surpasses any explanation. Will I betray him again? Well, sure. But he loves me anyway. And so I wonder today who in here is realizing that you're the betrayer. How many times have you walked up to Christ and kissed him? Metaphorically. Realizing that you're betraying him. Because until you have received salvation, until you belong to him and he belongs to you, you have done nothing but continuously betray him. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to church. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter how many times you've gotten wet. All that matters is that you know him and the free pardon of sin. And the fact that he loved us before we deserved it, while we were still betraying him, and died for us. And that's what we celebrate. That's why we call Friday Good Friday, even though he died that day. Because it's good because he released us from the great bondage of sin. There will be another triumphal entry. He will come back with a shout. 
and a trumpet. And those of us who know him and are alive will be caught up together in the air. The dead shall rise and we will rule with him. No more arguing about who's important. No more worrying about falling asleep because we want to talk to God. No more worry about any betraying anymore because all will be perfect. But until you have received forgiveness, and as I told the young ones this morning, that axe is laying at the root. And it's ready to take back and to swing and will cut it off. And you will be thrown into a lake of eternal fire. There is nothing to quench the burning. There is nothing to save you.